Thank you, Bill, for stepping in. And please do pray for those of our church family that are out because of sickness, uh, Kelsey included. Um, in fact, half of us up here this morning. So thank you for doing that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer right now. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your grace. Uh, thank you for the way you have blessed our church, Lord, in providing uh, folks who are just willing to step in and lead and serve. And even as is the case this morning, leading us to the throne through um, prayer and scripture reading and the singing of songs uh, in praise and worship to you. Now, Lord, as we uh, continue with our service and open up your word, Lord, we, we do so with great expectation that you would speak through your word, speak through the mystery of preaching um, by your spirit, Lord, enable and empower this word that goes forth uh, to land in soils of fertile hearts. Um, uh, we ask that you would do that, Lord, in spite of me. So help me in that process um, to speak clearly as you speak forth in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me to Psalm 130. Psalm 130. Last week I shared with you a story um, about a psalm that was sung back in 1681. You might remember that story. Uh, this morning I want to talk to you about a psalm that has been sung for centuries, obviously since the day it was written and used as a psalm of ascent, but specifically that was sung 57 years after the story I told you about last year, or last week, this time in 1738. The psalm uh, sung in 1681, as you recall, with those two girls that were pushed to their death by the hangman, uh, led to their death um, because of their faith in Christ. This second occasion led to a young man. So 57 years later leads to a young man that was brought, not like the girls were, from life to death, but was brought from death to life through saving faith in Jesus. Uh, so don't miss the contrast, right? One song was progressed from life to death, and the other from death to life. Any of y'all familiar with the name John Wesley? That's a yes for some, right? Wesley's the father of Methodism. He was ordained to ministry in 1728. And then he spent the next 10 years serving as an evangelist, a preacher, and a missionary, even a missionary to the eastern coast of the United States, starting his ministry, his evangelism mission ministry, um, in the coastal areas of Georgia. Um, as was the case for many ordained men in that day, however, uh, Wesley was not converted. Wesley was not a believer for the first 10 years of his ordained ministry. In 1738, 10 years after his ordination, he's traveling back through home and he slips into a Vesper service at St. Paul's Cathedral there in London where among other things that was going on in that uh, service, he hears the words of a song and the song that was being sung was Psalm 130. That very evening he attended another gathering and this gathering would have been just riveting entertainment, right? He went to hear the reading of the preface by Martin Luther um, to the book of Romans. So can you imagine, hey, we're going to be reading the preface of a commentary that Martin Luther wrote for the book of Romans. Well, he goes 
and found his heart strangely warmed. And it was at that point where, by God's grace, um, he was converted and came to Christ. Um, that was at a place, a house called Aldersgate for you history buffs. What was it about that psalm? What was it about the psalm we're about to read, Psalm 130, that God used to prick his heart and move him to repentance? Well, Wesley needed what all of us needed. We all needed personal forgiveness of sin. We all needed to be confronted with um, the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, um, and to be introduced to the nature of God as evidenced through His mercy. He needed His heart to be filled with the fear of God. And that's what took place. Psalm 130 is one of the 15 psalms of ascent. So these psalms would have been sung as pilgrims made their way to the temple. And you can imagine Psalm 130, given the content that we're about to read, this would have been sung by the pilgrims as they made their way to the temple seeking forgiveness for their sin. The theme of, the theme of Psalm 130 is very straightforward. It's only eight verses, so it won't take us long to get to the bottom of it. But this, this is the theme. Troubled travelers place their hope in God for forgiveness. That's why we've sung every song that we've done. That's why we um, have had the scriptures read that we have read and Paul pray, I'm sorry, Mark prayed in the way that he did. It's a little wonder then, given the theme of Psalm 130, why so many of our, the fathers of the church considered it one of their favorites. Um, and Charles Haddon Spurgeon, um, Martin Luther, uh, John Calvin. Interestingly enough, um, Martin Luther as well, but Charles Haddon Spurgeon called it the pearl of the Psalms because within it we find the pearl of redemption. Martin Luther, when, while teaching one of his lectures on the Psalms to his students, had a student come up to him after this class, after the lecture, and asked him about... Hey, which of the psalms should I be spending the majority of time getting to know? In other words, which of the psalms are one of your favorites? And Martin Luther responded with this little quip, and certainly he was jesting, but there was some truth to it. He said, my preference is the Pauline psalms, implying that there are psalms that, the Paul, wrote, that Paul wrote, right? And of course, he didn't, he wasn't there, but there are so many echoes of Paul's theology found in the Psalms, and this being one of them. Um, so I'm certain you're going to see that emphasis. No doubt it's what filled his writings when he's writing Romans, and he's, he's celebrating the fact that this Psalm, among many, maybe above many, um, put the great emphasis on forgiveness of sins by God's grace. Um, just like Paul's theology did. So join me as we look at Psalm 130. And I must tell you that it has been a joy to spend the week in Psalm 130. Maybe for, I've never really taught through Psalm 130 until this morning, um, but it's been a joy and it is easy to see why it is a favorite of so many of the fathers of our uh, faith. Here's the word of the Lord. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. 
If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless its reading and cause it to find a landing spot in our hearts. I've divided this psalm into two parts. The first is the depths of misery. And we'll spend the majority of our time in there finding it within the first six verses. And then the last two verses, verse 7 and 8, the character of God. It could have easily been divided into four parts. Even five parts, but I wanted to give you two big handles to walk through. The first is this, the depths of mercy. The psalmist really wastes no time, right? Letting us know what state he finds himself in as he's writing these things. He used the word depths, which brings to my mind misery. That's why I've included that in the first part of this outline. But unlike many of the other psalms, the depths within which he finds himself is not depths that he's in because of a problem outside of himself. So in other words, like David would be surrounded by enemies on the left and right, and that would be the thing that motivates and leads him to the depths. Psalm 130 is not like that. The source of his depths and the problem here is not outside of himself. Rather, the depths that he is writing about is a problem within himself. Verse 3 makes that abundantly clear that the source of this psalmist problem is sin. We'll get to it in a moment, but as you're glancing through, you'll see why I say that. Now the weight of his sin is heavy upon him. As if, as if he's trying to find footing on the bottom of the sea and he can't breathe, he can't see, he has no footing, and he is just submerged by the heaviness and conviction of sin. Similar to David's expression that he wrote in Psalm chapter 40, but David writes in Psalm 40 on the other side of deliverance from his uh, um, heaviness. He writes this, He drew me up, speaking of God, He drew me up from the pit of destruction. And then David in Psalm 40 describes that pit of destruction as the miry bog. And that's what was going on here. That's what the psalmist in 130 is writing about due to the heaviness of conviction about his own sin. It's like a miry bog. It's a, it's a quagmire. A few years ago, it's probably been 10 to 12 years ago, a buddy of mine and I traveled east of Huntsville to run this long trail run, and it had rained. I mean, just, it was nasty. And these trails that we were running on doubled as horse trails, right? And just, you can imagine just the, the gross nature of this thing as rain's coming down and every step is just gross. Well, I... I made an errant step and didn't kind of pick the side of the hill running through. And as I went right in the center of that thing, my foot just submerged down and my next step, I'm barefoot. I mean, it was a squish and it was so deep and nasty that my foot came out of this thing. My foot came out of my shoe and my shoe was left there. Miry bog. A quagmire. 
It's out of these depths that the psalmist does the only thing that he can do, and that's cry out to God. I want to state the obvious, but I want it to be said that the effect of unconfessed sin in his life and the life of the nation, verses 7 and 8, was equal to this miry bog, a quagmire. And frankly, the psalmist, we get the impression, has hit the bottom of it. And at the risk of jumping ahead into the psalm, I just want to point out something about unconfessed sin in the life of a believer, in the life of a genuinely converted, born-again believer who still is prone to sin. What you and I sacrifice because of unconfessed sin as a Christian is not our salvation. That is secured and purchased by Jesus. But it is most definitely intimacy. And it's from that point of brokenness of intimacy between God and Him because of His sin that the psalmist is crying out from the depths. Spent part of July 4th. We celebrated that night, uh, but spent a lot of that day cutting grass over here in Catoosa County at the place that we're building on and moving into. And afterwards, I was I mean, just dirty, gross, sweaty. And I'm driving home, needed to stop into Home Depot quickly, hoping I didn't see anybody that I knew. But as I'm walking down that aisle and turn left to the aisle I needed to get to, I in fact did see a family I know. And I had that temptation. You know, they didn't see me, so I'll make them loop around the other, and maybe I can come around and not be seen, but... Um, just dove right into it and said, hey, how's it going? Just pardon the mess here, kind of gross. And uh, it was providential that we connected. I asked about a family member of theirs. I haven't seen them in some months. And when I asked the question about the family member, the wife says to the husband, he doesn't know, does he? And I, did, I, I didn't know. Um, my mind went to the worst, and it was bad, but it wasn't where my mind went. Praise the Lord. But they spent the next 15, 20 minutes pouring their heart out over uh, the wayward nature of uh, this family member who had left the house and broken off contact. And it was just heart-wrenching as they shared their story. And before we parted, we circled up right there in the hallway or the aisle of Home Depot and, and I prayed for the family and I prayed for this wayward family member. And as I prayed, I asked, Lord, would you please be gracious and help him hit the depths softly, but to do so ready to cry out to you. I'm aware that oftentimes in our stubbornness and in our run away from God, it is a grace that provides depths. And from the depths and the bottom of that depths, he gets our attention through the heaviness of His conviction out of kindness, which leads us to repentance. So as I'm praying that, praying that this, this family member hits the depths but does so as softly as possible while still getting his heart's attention, I was just grateful in that moment to have that connection. And as I was studying through Psalm 130 this week, I couldn't help but remember that conversation and brought back to my mind that which I was praying for.
My question for us this morning and why I want this chapter to land so heavily on us is to ask this question of all of us individually. So would you just kind of answer this in your heart? Not a show of hands, not a stand-up or any of that, but is there unconfessed sin in your life this morning? Can you relate to this psalmist whose sin has resulted in him crying out from the depths? You don't have to remain there. But you must be honest with God about your sin. Augustine wrote these words. Augustine lived in the 4th and 5th century and he wrote these words. So pardon the uh, language with which he wrote it. He writes this. But when he crieth, from the deep. You kind of wish we still used the word crieth. He says, But when he crieth from the deep, he riseth from the deep. And his very cry suffering suffereth him not to be long at the bottom. Do you hear what Augustine is saying? That when God by His grace has brought you to recognize your sin, even if it's from the bottom, when we cry out to Him, you need not stay there at the bottom. And that's what this psalmist is dealing with. Folks, family, ask God for the grace to see how destructive whatever sin is running rampant in your life right now. And follow the lead of this psalmist who, who from the bottom, from the miry bog, from the depths, cried out to God and received forgiveness. Let's look and see how he did this. Look at verse 1. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas. For notice what he asked for? For mercy. For mercy. Listen, when your greatest need is the forgiveness of sin, self-help is no help. Derek Kidner adds something that I think is profound. He says, self-help is no answer to the depths of distress, however useful it might be in the shallows of self-pity. And it's not self-pity which you're going for if you're finding yourself living in the depths because of your sin. It's not yours as a child of God to wallow in the shallows of self-pity. It is yours to cry out to the God of mercy who can pull you out by His grace through forgiveness of confessed sin. So the psalmist does just that. He cries out to God for mercy. God, withhold what I deserve. In other words, I deserve the depths and all that comes with the depths. And grant me by Your grace to receive what I don't deserve. Rescue. Pardon. Cleansing. Look with me at verse 3 now. Because the psalmist knows, listen, it's futile to make any yeah, but arguments regarding our sin. He knows that God is spotlessly holy and has the right to keep an account of every one of the many sins that have been sinned against him and that if God were to do so, the psalmist would be helpless to stand against it. He would be helpless to stand against the deserved punishment. In short, Verse 3 shows us how the psalmist is owning up to his sin. Something that you and I must all do. It can be corporately, but it certainly must be individually in your heart. 
Something we all must need, we all must have, we all must do to be raised up from the depths of where sin takes us. Verse 3, second point here, is own up to sin. Notice what verse 3 says, O Lord, I'm sorry, if you, O Lord, should mark your iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? So this verse is a clear declaration of awareness of personal guilt against God. William Plummer writes this, he says, The purest man on earth ought to acknowledge his entire sinfulness and dependence upon the mercy of God. The Scriptures, all the way from Psalms to Romans, make it abundantly clear that no one is without sin. The whole world lies in wickedness. The whole world deserves punishment. Notice what Psalm 53 says. In Psalm 53, David writes, God looks down from the skies. He looks down from the heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. And he concludes, they have all fallen away. Together, they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And you know, Paul's going to use that as part of his argument in Romans chapter 3. If one is going to own up to his own sin, it will require that he measure his sin not against the sin of others, right? But against the holiness of God. Against God's standard of perfection. And God revealed his nature and God revealed his holiness to the people from Mount Sinai when he gave them his law through Moses. Now listen, until, even look back at my Home Depot conversation, until, by God's grace, one is able to see his sin as an affront against God, until one is able to see his sin as an affront against God's holiness, as breaking his perfect law, there will be no perceived need for him to cry out from the depths for mercy. And that mercy came at the expense of God's Son. Think about this. Mount Sinai, where God hid Moses within the cleft of the rock and showed him his glory. Mount Sinai, the place where he revealed his nature, which I'll read for you at the end of the service. Mount Sinai, the place where God delivered his law to Moses to be given to the people. The law, which was to stand not only as the tutor, but as the evidence that we cannot do this life on our own. We cannot accomplish that which is necessary to make us right with God. We must. And we, we see the law. We see our inability to keep it. We see God's perfect and holy standard. And we, 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 we rest under the fact that we can't do it, but He's provided someone who did do it. But until we wrestle with that and come to grips with that, until Mount Sinai thunders against us by God's grace, we will not flee to Mount Calvary. And when Mount Sinai thunders against us with the weight of that and our inability to measure up to it, it is a grace leading us to Christ. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Jesus. That he who is majestic in holiness, God, 
is also rich in mercy and grace and has provided a rope of escape. That's what we're going to look at in verse 4. But let me just take another aside and just kind of speak to your heart, especially if, if you're wrestling with some unconfessed sin or the Lord is maybe even bringing that to your attention right now to confess. Our enemy, the devil, would have us crush beneath the weight of condemnation. And to think that whatever sin uh, we've committed and that maybe we're in the thick of is both unforgivable and impossible to get behind. That's what the enemy wants us to think. Why? Because we're going to kind of dig ourselves into the depths. We're going to alienate ourselves from other believers. We're going to run away from where the gospel is preached. We're going to run away from the word because we're thinking, who can live up to it? The psalmist provides us a great corrective to such thinking. And he does so by offering us a truth that you and I must remind ourselves each and every day. Look at verse 4. Psalm 130, verse 4. Next point. Grasp the rope of truth. Here's the word. But. Verse 3. If you held transgressions, a record of it, who could stand? Verse 4, but. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. People, God does not keep a record of sin, but with Him there is forgiveness. Aren't you grateful for the perfect timing of the word but in the Bible? It makes an appearance in Ephesians chapter 2 by the words of Paul. Listen to these words, Ephesians 2, 1 through 4. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. The forgiveness of God is for all who will forsake their sin and return to the Lord. Isaiah makes this abundantly clear in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 6 and 7. I love this passage. It says, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. Be encouraged this morning. The forgiveness of God is unlimited. There is no sin that once confessed, our faithful God will refuse to forgive. You remember the words of this hymn? We sing it pretty often around here. My sin Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross 
and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Finally, let's consider the last couple verses of this section, verses 5 through 6. This last little point that Xander's going to throw up there is this. Hope in His Word as you wait on Him. Notice these two verses. I'll read them both. You'll, you'll hear some repeated phrases for the emphasis by the heart of God through the pen of the psalmist here. He says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in His Word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than the watchman for the morning. More than watchman for the morning. There appears now to have been a change that has been wrought in the heart of the psalmist, right? Things are turning in the, in the progression of this psalm. He's, he's received forgiveness, and now he's, he's waiting on God. The question that kind of begs to be asked is, what's he waiting on? What's he waiting on here with the same type of impatience that a night watchman might have for his morning shift to be over? That night that seems to be eternal and, and every time he looks down at his watch thinking another hour has passed and notices that just a few minutes have passed. Patiently waiting. Impatiently waiting, the watchman does. I'd like to suggest that the psalmist is waiting on at least two things. Both of which we should be waiting hopefully for as well. The first is this. To wait for God's restorative work in you. The legitimacy of God's forgiveness of confessed sin is a truth that you can stake your life upon. Promised throughout the Old Testament, exemplified throughout the Old Testament, Promised in the New Testament. Exemplified in the New Testament. Luke chapter 7, the adulterous woman. who his, Her expression of love to Jesus portrays the relative nature of the bigness that she saw and viewed her forgiveness as being. But also spoken in 1 John. If you confess your sin, God is faithful and just to forgive you of all sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The legitimacy of God's forgiveness of confessed sin is a truth that you can stake your life upon. We stand upon the authority of His Word for such blessed hope. That's why this, the psalmist says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in His Word I hope. So we stand upon the authority of His Word for that blessed hope. However... We do so in spite the fact that God's forgiveness is immediate. While that's the fact, consequences remain. And the restoration of intimacy is a process that takes time. As God works in us what He will, and He works out of us what He must. For the sake of time, let me... Just allow the words that we've already read together from David in Psalm chapter 51, um, written soon after his confession of sin with Bathsheba took place. His sin was forgiven immediately. Restoration he waited on. 
So listen to these words again from Psalm 51. He wrote this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, all, of, all pouring out of God's nature. Blot out my transgressions, he wrote. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, he writes. And my sin is ever before me. Do you hear how he's owning up to his own sin as an affront against God? He continues to do so. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Do you hear the echoes of Psalm 130? If you would keep a record, who could stand? You'd be justified to do it. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. There's the standard, God's standard, that he has put forth. David continues to write, Post-forgiveness, purge me with hyssop, and I'll be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. This is David's own description of his depths. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my, my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your spirit, Holy Spirit, from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. He is hoping and waiting on the Lord and clinging to the hope of His Word as He does so. So just like David waited on the Lord to do this work in him, the psalmist of 130 is relying upon God to do a similar work. I wait for the Lord, he said. My soul waits, and in His Word I hope. I believe Him to be who He said He is. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning more than the watchman for the morning. The second thing that I'm certain the psalmist is waiting on and waiting upon the Lord for, as, as we are, as we hope in His Word, is this second thing. By God's grace and holding tightly to the promise of His Word, we're waiting for the day, that glorious day, when forgiveness will be unnecessary. Consider the words of John in Revelation 21. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We join the psalmist in waiting with hope, clinging to the Word. Waiting as the watchman waits for the night to be over. For Him to do that work within us. And also for that day when forgiveness will be unnecessary. The bulk of what I wanted to share with you is found in the first part here. The depths of misery. I will do no service to the last two verses a place that we could stay a long time as well, but that's this. The character of God is found in verses 7 through 8. The character of God. 
Forgive me for the uh, flyby here. I trust you'll spend some time in this yourself. O Israel, he says, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is, listen to this character, steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. God never acts outside of his character. His mercy and forgiveness arise out of his character. Steadfast love. Merciful. And his steadfast love has been demonstrated through the provision of his son Jesus. The flagship demonstration of that is the redemption of man through the shed blood of Jesus. The character of God seen here in these verses, steadfast love, plentiful redemption. God never acts outside of His character. Let me refer you to Exodus chapter 34 as I begin to close here. In Exodus 34, verses 6-7, through back to Mount Sinai. God has revealed His glory to Moses. And now He is revealing His name to Moses. In other words, He's revealing His nature. He is telling him about Himself. He's telling Moses about God Himself. And He does so with these words. He says, The Lord. The Lord. A God merciful and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Abounding in faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. By God's grace, all who are found in Jesus find themselves the recipient of the nature of God which is reflective in His mercy, His grace, the fact that He's slow to anger, the fact that He's He is abounding in steadfast love. He is abounding in faithfulness. He is abounding in plentiful redemption. And He's keeping steadfast love for thousands. But for those who reject Jesus, for those who reject the free gift of grace through the gospel, they'll see this other side. Another side where His justice is levied. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Let me conclude by showing you three things that are true of those who receive the forgiveness of God. These will not come with commentary, just a list. The first is this. He waits. We've seen it in this psalm. Can I encourage you to run deeply to your knee, quickly to your knee, waiting upon the Lord and hoping in His Word. Confessing sin freely. Walking in forgiveness that we know is immediate. And submitting to the work that He's wanting to do in your life. Working in you what He wills. Working out of you what you need. Wait on the Lord. Second thing that's true of the forgiven, He fears I glossed right over it in Psalm chapter 130, verse 4, and only did so for the sake of time. 
It says, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The end goal here for our forgiveness is, a re, from God's perspective, is yes, that we would have our intimacy restored with Him, but that our lives will be lived in reverence and in, in reverential awe before Him, that we would measure our steps, decisions, things we take in, in light of the fear of the Lord. He waits, He fears, and then finally He tells. From the experience of one, here in Psalm 130, as He's walked it all the way through, one who has enjoyed the forgiveness of God comes the expression of hope for others who will come to Christ. That's why these words say, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love. And who can say this with more conviction than one who has drunk deeply from the wells of life and forgiveness, having been rescued from the depths that comes to all who confess their sin before Him. I've loved 130, and I invite you and encourage you to spend a lot of time in there. It is a balm for your soul, and like Spurgeon says, a pearl of the Psalms. Let's pray. Lord, your grace is amazing. Even with some of our folks out this morning due to sickness, Lord, I'm mindful that in any gathering of people, there could be folks in our midst that like John Wesley had been active in the life of the church for a decade but didn't know you through true conversion. And Lord, if that's true of anyone in this room, I pray that they would humble themselves. I pray that they would receive that judicial declaration of forgiveness that can only come from you, God, because of your son Jesus. So would you move in their heart to repent of their sins, to ask for your forgiveness, and to be saved? Lord, I pray that that would be true. And Lord, for those who are in Christ, but who are wrestling with sin, a sin that so easily entangles, and maybe they're living their life day by day with a a facade of a mask that's on because they're living in the depths. Give them by God's grace the reminder of the rope of truth that with you there is forgiveness. Help them cry out from the depths. Help them own up to their sin and help them walk in forgiveness. Hoping in you. Waiting on you while they hope in the Word. Lord, thank you for grace. Apply it deeply to our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.